Amen. I invite you to remain standing in the Father's house as we read from God's Word. Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. When the Lamb, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them, and, the angel, and another angel came and, took, uh, and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer, filled, with, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, I won't be silent for half an hour. I actually need your attention for a half an hour to unpack the message of Revelation chapter 8 to chapter 11. That is a daunting task. But all the kids in the room, too. That's a long message. It's like if someone invited you over for, uh, for a movie night and they said, hey, how about we watch all of the Lord of the Rings trilogy and all of the Hobbit trilogy at high speed in one night? That's 20 hours of, of, of film. So if you need a potty break, we understand. That's okay if you need to step out. This is a lot of scripture to cover in one sermon. But listen, chapters 8 to 11 all go together. And if you're taking notes, if you just want to know what's the big idea, here it is, you can write it down. John's vision of these seven trumpets do two things. They sound the alarm of God's impending judgment, and they reassure us of God's great mercy. Sound the alarm. Something, something really awful is coming. Judgment's coming. Respond before it's too late. And we see God's great mercy, that there is time. There is something that can be done. We can get ready. So before we begin, a, a little word of review about this study in the book of Revelation. Revelation, the last book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus was given to John, who was a, a prophet. He was a political prisoner, and he was a pastor. And John had a series of visions, and he, he wrote what he heard and saw as a form of scripture called apocalyptic prophecy. This is writing filled with Old Testament imagery uh, to, to reveal and convey secrets of reality. So using Old Testament imagery and allusions, over 500 of them uh, in the verses of, of this letter, of this vision, to convey something that's relevant and applies to real life situations. He, he was writing to seven real churches in Asia Minor who were both uh, challenged and needed a word of comfort. And so he wrote, both, uh, he wrote both a word of challenge and a word of comfort. The word of challenge was to those churches that were being apathetic, the ones that were uh, kind of moving more closer and closer to the Roman Empire, kind of cozying up to the ways of the world to challenge them. At the same time, those that were remaining faithful to Jesus, following in the way of the Lamb, they were being persecuted by the Roman Empire, and he wanted to comfort them and encourage them to stay strong. Now, when we study Scripture, 
depending on its genre, it's almost always best to start with its most clear, direct, clear-cut, literal meaning. So what I mean by that is when we open God's word, read what it says, and start off with, well, these are the words, this must mean what it means, before we try to dig deeper for some deeper spiritual meaning. I mean, I'd be out of a job if we only stuck with, this is literally what it means, it doesn't have any other implication on your life, we'd be done in five minutes. So I got to get paid. Just kidding, I'm just kidding. So listen, as an example, you open the Gospels, and you read a Gospel report of Jesus getting up early in the morning and going off to a quiet place to pray. What does that mean? It means Jesus, he got up before the sun had come up. And he didn't go to a really busy place. Where did he go? He went to, amen. Boy, I can stretch that one out, right? That's how we, that's how we study scripture. That's how we preach. Just what's its clearest meaning? And then what's the deeper implications? What might that mean for our life? How we should pray and all the rest. With apocalyptic prophecy, we flip that script upside down. We start with what is its deeper symbolic meaning? What, what, what's trying to be conveyed here? Because as we've seen, if you've been with my study in, in Revelation, there's a lot of things that if you take them literally, they are literally out of this world. For instance, describing Jesus as having seven eyes and seven horns. Do you literally think that that's what our Lord looks like? That's not what he looks like. There's a deeper theological meaning and then after that, we look at, okay, what, what's the application, real-life circumstances? Okay. Let me give you an example uh, to show you what I mean. Look at this image. The most famous uh, work of art by Pablo Picasso, Guernica, 1937. It's regarded as the most powerful anti-war painting in history, portraying the horrors of war. It has images of of animals and people and, and violence and there's a broken sword in the front and there's all sorts of scary things happening here. It's meant to be filled with symbols that evoke an emotional response from those who view it and have been viewing it ever since it was first created. Now, what does it literally mean? What is this image representing literally? Well, the literal circumstance was there was a village in Spain, in Basque country, during the Spanish Civil War, and it was bombed on behalf of uh, Francisco Franco, who was a a rebel nationalist leader, and it was done uh, by his friends, Nazi Germany, and by fascist Italy. That's the literal background. Do you see any of that? Is there anything there that would tell you that? Yet, no, there's, there's something evocative, and it just grabs the whole of your attention, doesn't it? An anti-war image that could be played out in, in our own times. 20 years ago, what happened in Rwanda could be played out. Even in the past few years, the nine years of rebellion in Syria could be played out. Now, it would take a, a, an art historian up here to explain all that background in history way better than I could explain it, why Pablo Picasso created this in his Paris studio, why he never went back to Spain after creating this until many years later when Franco was kicked out. It would take an art expert to explain to us why this is a masterpiece. But even a child can look at these shapes and images 
and feel something from this art. That's what the book of Revelation is doing in front of us. At first, these chapters 8 to 11 seem scary and strange and, and even surreal. But they're there to help us understand something, to help us feel something, and then for us to respond to that message. It's supposed to grab your attention. The warning of God's judgment being worked out, and yet also the reassurance to Christians, to the church, that God ultimately will win. And the message that John wants his people to see is that you can see a victory. Don't look down at all the circumstances that you're facing, all the pressure and all the terror and all the hardship in your given context, a context at that time that's repeated again and again, and even for our time. Look up and see a victory. See where we're headed. And this is where we're headed. Chapter 11, verse 15 the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. See that victory. That's what John wants to convey. As I said, chapter 8 to 11 is packed with symbolic Old Testament references and also references to contemporary circumstances that, that John uh, and his people were facing. So as an example, when you see Babylon in the book of Revelation, you can translate that for Rome as one example. So John wants you and me to feel something, to understand something deep in our soul, and then to respond. When it looks hopeless, look what we just were singing about. When all hope looks lost, don't lose hope. Hang on, hang on to your faith. Follow in the way of the Lamb, and you will have victory. Okay, let's start at the beginning, chapter 8. Chapter 8, picks up where we've, where we've left off two weeks ago. The Lamb opens the seventh seal, and there is silence in heaven for about half an hour. Worship stops. That is not a good thing. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up in Guido de los Santinas' home, when my father was upset, he would just stare at us. He wouldn't say a word. I need to explain myself all the time at home, but no, my dad, and you just knew. It was trouble. In the Old Testament, whenever there is silence, it's never a good thing. The idea here is that God's judgment is coming, and so the world just falls silent. Think of it this way. You're at a football game or a baseball game or, or a basketball court, and someone gets injured. I mean, really hits hard. Something, what happens? Stop. The players all take a knee. We wait patiently to see what the paramedics will do. That's what happens here. It says for about half an hour, we can't take that literally. It means it happened abruptly and really quickly. It's important you don't miss, though, the practical discipleship application in the book of Revelation. We get so caught up in all of the imagery that we're going to study, and I know that that's the that's kind of a, the wow factor of the text, but don't miss the real practical piece of this. There's a lesson here about the power of prayer. Verse 3. Verse 3 says, The prayers of the saints are added with the incense, and they go up to God. It means that the martyrs are crying out for justice, and God hears their prayer, and God answers 
prayer. Uh, it's hard for us to relate to persecution and hardship for the sake of Christ. Yeah, maybe you've had it hard at work or at school, but you've never lost your job over it. You've never had your door kicked in and a loved one dragged out and thrown into prison and never to see again. That's what these Christians were dealing with. That's what millions of brothers and sisters in Christ are dealing with even now. And the martyrs, John says, are crying out, how long, oh God, how long until there is justice? Last week, Pastor Frank preached a beautiful sermon on God's love. He said, we're taking a break from Pastor Pete's sort of heavy uh, revelation. Well, let's talk about God's love, not so much about justice. But, you know, those are two sides of the same coin. To know God's love is to know that there will be justice served. So if you say, oh, no, it's okay. You know, hey, you've you lost everything. You've, you've prayed. Hey, you know, your prayer doesn't really do anything. It's already worked out. Everyone's going to be fine in the end. No, this says there is power in the prayer of the church. There's power in a praying church. So we need our little ones and all of us here praying that five-finger prayer or something to see what God has in store. Okay, now back to the text. There's silence, and then there are seven angels. Perhaps these are the same seven angels uh, assigned to the seven churches, and they are given seven trumpets. I don't think Rob and I planned that we'd have a horn section here. They're all trumpets, so Steve, Steve's got the trumpet. We had you know, a saxophone. We had, um, thank you, trombone. This is the trumpets to sound the alarm. And we see this sequence of seven. We've talked about this many times. I won't repeat uh, that. But again, there's the seven churches, uh, chapters two and three. There's the seven seals, chapters five to eight. Here we have the seven trumpets, chapters eight to 11. And then we'll look at the seven bulls in chapters 15 to 16. Why am I covering so much text in one message? It's because these aren't describing different events in sequence. They are parallel events of the same event from different points of view. So we don't have the seven seals, and then on the seventh seal, then chronologically something else happens, and they're, they're all lined up. It's just the view of the same thing from different perspectives. For John to drive down, to drill down on the same themes that we've been talking about for the first number of weeks. In view here, in symbolic imagery, is history leading up to the return of Christ the King. Return of the King, wasn't that one of the movies in the children? Oh, interesting, I wonder, a return of a king, the rightful king, I wonder if Tolkien was a Christian. Spoiler alert, he was. He stole it from the Bible. So this is history played out from different perspectives. And as we saw with the seals, and we'll see this morning with the trumpets, and you'll see again with the bulls, the first five are realities in history that have happened and are happening even now. This expression will be repeated. The sixth trumpet in this case will be judgment day. Then there's a pause for John to, be remi to remind the church that, that they're covered. Remember, we talked about the seal on, on all Christians, and we'll see here this pause where John's reminded that the church will be okay. And then the seventh seal the seventh trumpet, the seventh bull, is the final judgment and what happens after that. And after the final seal is broken, the trumpets are handed out and there's fire that's thrown down on the earth to one portion of the earth and all heaven breaks loose. 
and the alarms have sounded. And they've already sounded. How many of you sleep through an alarm clock in the morning ever? You ever do that? It just keeps beeping and beeping and beeping? These alarms have already been going on and on and on. These first uh, trumpets that are blown, they relate very clearly with the story of the Exodus. We know the account of the Exodus. When Moses went to Pharaoh to say, God wants you to let my people go, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, right? He was like, no. And so what happened? There were plagues that came down. I asked Sarah, I said, I'm a little worried about preaching the sermon and Sunday with a bunch of kids, what do you talk about the Exodus? You say, oh, we talk about frogs and blood. And we, talk about all, we talk about all the plagues. Okay, well, the kids know about those plagues. Well, it's right here in Scripture. It's showing it again. And what's Pharaoh's response? Hardening his heart. And how did that work out for him in the end? No bueno, no good. That's what John is telling us here. Just as Pharaoh doubled down, the kings of the world, the nations, the people in charge, they will grow more and more hard-hearted toward God. And so these first four trumpets that are blown, environmental catastrophe to parts of the globe, water turning bad. Really, it's decreation. We think of creation, we think of recreation. This is a deforming, a decreation of the world, yet people refuse to repent. So there are different forms of, of judgment, but I want you to take just three notes. Number one, these these judgments are controlled, and they are limited by God. God's in control. God sets exactly where and how they will play out for a specific duration of time so that there's still room and a chance for people to respond. Number two, these terrible events will not harm the church because people are covered by the Holy Spirit. Number three, John says, these judgments are a divine response to the prayers of the martyrs. So somehow God works this out in, in his divine sovereign. He says, as the church prays, I will respond. We can figure that one out another time. And so we've had these four terrible trumpets. And if you haven't read the text, read it maybe, maybe before lunch because you might, you might feel a little sick afterwards, okay? Then, if that wasn't bad enough, the last three are called woes. Whoa. Can you say that? Whoa. Trumpets five, six, and seven. Trumpet seven's blown, and Satan falls from heaven. He's handed a key that opens a pit, a bottomless pit, to the abyss. It's never a good thing in the Bible when you see a bottomless pit. The craziest, scariest thing comes out of this pit. Locusts that are unimaginable. Now, I've heard in, in Africa, there is a 70 years this hasn't happened. There's a swarm of, of locusts that are eating every bit of vegetation in parts of Africa. These locusts do not eat vegetation. Again, these are symbols, powerful symbols that communicate their power, they're well-armed, they're fierce warriors. They're a war machine. No, I don't think John was seeing an Apache helicopter. John was drawing from past judgments against kingdoms that stood opposed to God. And he's also seeing his current circumstance 2,000 years ago. He's seeing the attack of those that are coming to attack and destroy the Roman Empire, which is exactly what happened. Anything that stands in the way of Christ the King will fail. The hellish hordes from the pit of hell will not win. Jesus said in Matthew 16, the gates of hell shall not prevail. See a victory. That's the theme 
throughout this section of Scripture. In 20 hours of watching Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, you can sum it up by this. There's a battle between good and evil, and good will win out. There it is. Spoiler, you don't have to watch 20 hours of TV ever again. <laughs> and the message of four chapters, it would take me all afternoon to unpack every single verse, is this. Three things. The power of prayer, the power of proclaiming the good news, and the power of Jesus to sustain us. That's the message of these four chapters. Because you see, there's a pause here. Now, if you're in your book, you can just turn, if you're keeping up with me, to chapter 10. Uh, This is on page 36 there, a little booklet. Remember, there's a little pause. We had that little pause last time in chapter 7. Here, there's a pause. Chapter 10 through uh, chapter 11, verse 14. A little pause. Just like the prophet Ezekiel was handed a scroll to eat, John... The prophet, the prisoner, the pastor is handed a little scroll of scripture to to eat. It's sweet on his lips, but is bitter to his stomach. Can you think of something that tastes like that? What would be sweet on one's lips and bitter to one's stomach? Not the literal meaning. What's the symbolic meaning? This pause in the action before the final judgment God is reminding John of his calling, that he has the very sweet words of the gospel on his lips to proclaim good news to the nations, of God's love in Jesus Christ, and he's come to rescue, to save, to redeem those good words that will come. But for so many, when they consume it, it's bitterness. They're rejected. How dare you? I'm offended by that message. I'm never going to go back to that kind of church that would have that kind of message. And so John, like Ezekiel, who is bringing a word of correction to the, to the people of God, John's being prepared here. You will have these words on your lip, and not everyone will be able to digest it. In fact, people even in the church will not be able to digest it. Because the message of glory and victory, oh, glory and victory in Jesus' name, is sweet on our lips until we understand how is that victory won? By suffering. How do we win as Christians? By losing. How do we succeed and get our way? By laying our lives down. And not everyone can stomach that. No, no, I just like the sweet part of the message. I like the winning part of the message. But the scripture says, follow the way of the lamb and the way he should go. Revelation 14.4. And the way he went was to the cross the most powerful image in the church, the victory we have in Christ. So there's this pause, and then there's something really interesting that happens. Uh, John is told to to measure the temple of God. He just has time to get a ruler and start measuring, literally, figuratively. This is a temple we'll see again in chapter, uh, chapter 10 that does not have an outer court. That was the place where the Gentiles would gather. The outer court of the tabernacle or the temple was where the uh, Gentiles would gather. But in God's house, in God's city, there is no outer court because the people of God are made up of people from all around the globe, from every tribe and every nation. You know, in Scripture, when they refer to nation, they're really thinking about ethnic groups. The word there is actually ethno. India is one nation, but there are over 
1,400 different ethnic groups in India. And scripture says God's people will be made up of every ethnic group in the world. John hears this. He's encouraged about this ethnic church, this multinational church. We're coming down to it, everybody. Uh, chapter 11. There are two witnesses appointed by God to go to the nations. 11.3, there are these two witnesses that step forward. They are not individual people because they're described as being two olive trees and also being two lampstands. Zechariah chapter 4, the olive tree there points to the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. So these are, whatever this is, these two are filled with the Spirit. There are two of them. That's a strong witness, stronger than one. But they're also named lampstands, which we saw, do you remember, from chapter 2 and 3? The churches were lampstands. Do you remember there are seven churches in the first chapters of Revelation? I told you these things will repeat. How many of the seven churches were faithful, filled with the Holy Spirit, and faithful to their calling of sharing the good news? Only two, Smyrna and Philadelphia. And the rest broke away. Ephesus lost its first love. Pergamum and Thyatira compromised. Sardis was wealthy and famous but self-absorbed. And Laodicea was lukewarm. Only two of the seven churches will be faithful. And in those final days, we're almost done, John's given a vision that these two witnesses who are left alone, think of all the church, people abandoning the, the church of Christ, and there'll be two left. It says a beast comes up that we'll look at in a couple of weeks, a beast comes and kills these two witnesses. But then God resurrects them. It will look like the church is utterly destroyed in the last days before he comes. But then they are resurrected to go forth one last time to pray, to proclaim the gospel, and to rely on the power of God. And we see finally with that seventh trumpet, a multinational church massive amount of evangelism across the globe of people finally coming, finally waking up to the alarms and accepting Christ. Do you see a victory? 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The reality is all of the warning signs, all of the warning signs have already been delivered. And what will be our response? God in his mercy has shown through Jesus' followers that, that victory comes through laying our life down for Christ, for serving people, for loving them with the way Jesus loved his people. This brings victory. This breaks down divides. It changes everything. That's the message of this letter to be strong in the Lord. And so finally, I'll say this, friends, let's commit ourselves again to prayer. Let's commit ourselves to the opportunities you have to share a sweet word of, of good news with someone. And you, know, you don't even have to have all the exact words, but just to, to express that to them. And let's rely on the power of God in all that we do as a church as we see this, this future that the Lord has for us before he comes again. Let's pray. Lord God, we marvel at what you've accomplished in Jesus Christ on our behalf. We pray, Lord, that the message of, of revelation, Lord, would just grab hold of our hearts. We wouldn't spend as much time trying to dissect it as we would by trying to 
respond to it in prayer, in proclamation, in practice, oh God. Pray, Lord, for your blessing on on us as we go forward uh, and we see your kingdom come and your will be done and your victory. We want to see your victory. Amen.